All good, all good. All right, everyone, this is a class about sound money. Um, I'm going to geek out a little bit on history here as well, um, because I, I really did get the sense from this whole thing. And, you know, even Brett Malinowski, I was talking to him yesterday in WGMI uh, meeting, and even he was like, you know, wow, I'm, I'm all for mass adoption, but I thought kind of the vanguard, all the people over here would have, you know, got some basic sound money you know, understanding. So, yeah, let's do a class a little bit on, on, on sound money. I want to do a little bit of a history, you know, lesson into kind of what happened in 2008, what we were kind of trying to solve with Satoshi Nakamoto. And I think if you go with those principles, um, then it gives you an outlook um, and a way to kind of, you know, pick which, you know, of, of the traditional banking systems you want to use and why. And yeah, I think that's the way to look at it. Okay, so um, firstly, a quick kind of history of money. Um, if you look at the history of, you know, how barter became money, basically you would have people going into a town, right? You produced apples and you're like, look, I produce apples. I want a cow. How many apples for your cow? And that would be basic barter. And the problem with barter is you have to actually find someone um, who likes your apples, right? If you don't find someone who likes your apples, you're in trouble, especially if it's a perishable item, right? Foods are very good, and we, we come from agrarian economies, we come from agriculture economies, and so you have a bit of a problem over there. And so it was a natural evolution for everyone to agree on a store of wealth, Right? People will say, well, why is gold so important and famous? It's, it's naturally rare. It's hard to come by. It's very easy to check. Right? For the longest time, we've been able to check gold purity. It's also very easily divisible. Right? It can be stretched and pulled. It's also attractive. So people would kind of then turn it into jewelry and wear it and stuff like that. And so gold and silver and precious metals became kind of a natural uh, way to store wealth. And so that was like sound money 101. And pretty much gold was the standard, um, you know, for all time until really the Second World War, um, you know, when, when the Western powers kind of went off of the gold standard. But basically that was what we considered money. Um, and even minting presses when they started making coins you know, they would get themselves in a lot of trouble when they would replace, you know, certain percentage of gold. Like people would basically just naturally devalue the coin uh, according to how much gold was actually in it. Um, there's, there's numerous cases in history where, you know, uh, kind of the, 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 the stewards, right, the kind of the, the successive line after Queen Elizabeth and even Henry VIII got into trouble because they were, you know, it was 87% gold and stuff like that. So that's aspect number one of sound money. Aspect number two is leverage has always been used by commodity exchanges, right? Um, the history of kind of commodity exchanges is similarly that if you think about it, if you're a farmer, right, and you are working out your costs now to make a farm, right, to, to, to what things cost to, with labor and growth and all of that, you're in serious trouble if comes a harvest, right, 
and the price has fallen drastically, right? So you were expecting $10 a bale, now you're getting $8 a bale. And so the whole concept of the, the futures exchanges, the commodities exchanges, was that people could lock in prices, right? And locking in a price is the very definition of a hedge, right? You're basically saying, I'd rather agree to a $9.50 than, a guarantee, than, than the potential for maybe $11, but also the potential for $7, right? That's what farmers are trying to lock in. And for people who rely, like a butcher, who relies on you know, again, a steady supply and not much price interruption because, you know, we know that when people raise or lower prices, it's very hard to, you know, fuck around with that, right? You know, the coffee shop will kind of take the loss for a little bit to hope kind of things stabilize because their economists are like, you know, their customers notice when their coffee went up 20 cents extra when that's something you're having daily. Um, and so the people that relied on it, like the butchers, they would you know, want to kind of secure that, you know, they've locked in prices for the next six or seven months. And because of the nature um, of them buying in advance, um, it, it became common practice to put down a deposit, right? It was never necessarily expected to be as leverage, right? But it was like, on those contracts, still to this day, like if you look at the mercantile exchanges or commodity exchanges, you're putting down a deposit, right? Um, and now, of course, enters the savvy traders, and they are happy to take advantage of that, right? Because it's actually the exchanges, the commodity exchange themselves, that only require you to put down a deposit um, on these contracts, right? 99% of people who today trade on, you know, commodity exchanges never intend to take possession um, of the items, although there's been some very, very funny stories where the contracts elapse, and they get contacted by the mercantile exchange, and they're like, um, okay, so how are you picking up your pork bellies now? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm a, I'm, I'm a trader. And they're like, well, I mean, you, you kept the contract all the way till its end result. You're now the proud owner of pork bellies. And also, you know, you've given us a 10% deposit. Where's the other 90%? So there's lots of funny stories like that. Uh, the exchanges are used to this, by the way. So they've kind of, you know... They, they, they will have an auction and auction off to a local kind of, you know, situation. But these stories happen a lot. So, um, yeah, so those exchanges offer natural leverage. And why I'm bringing this up in parallel about sound money is there's nothing wrong with institutions offering leverage. The problem really is when they're not segregating accounts, right? And when they haven't, you know, when an, when a, an institution is both offering you deposits uh, and leverage, and then the two things are not split up, right? They, they're either not telling you that you're involved in leverage, right? You know, I'll get into the, the standard banking system now where you are, in fact, told and people have just become comfortable with it. Um, or they just are not supposed, they're just not segregating as they're supposed to be doing, right? In the case of FTX, it was supposed to have been segregated, but no one was doing an audit, no one was actually checking that everything was backed one-to-one. -one. So, if you look at the original story of banking, banking was Goldsmith. Basically, what would happen is there were only really two groups of people historically in medieval times who had um, serious kind of security when it came to precious things, right? It was the, the royal mint, right? These were the people who were checking the gold and making the coins. And, you know, all throughout history, if you tried to make fake coins, uh, you got you know, the, with all the harshest punishment, right? Because we people needed to rely on sound money 
Uh, in fact, there was recently a, a forged Roman coin that was found and it was so rare, right, to find like a good quality copy like forgery that it was worth 10 times uh, the normal coin. Uh, so you do have stories like that. But anyway, um, the other group was the Goldsmith Guild. And the Goldsmith Guild were the people producing jewelry. And they found themselves in a very interesting situation. You had all these sailors and, and travelers coming in um, who everyone knew had just got off the dock and were loaded, right? Thief 101, you know, look for, for fat loaded merchants. And uh, so the first stop they would go and do was they would go and deposit it with the Goldsmith Guild, who basically offered what we would call today custodial banking, right? And custodial banking is literally the aspect of you pay me a fee to offer you storage, right? Most people still experience custodial banking today, but only in the form of a box, right? If you buy a box in a bank, that's example of custodial. It's segregated literally in the box. All they're doing for you is storing it. Uh, and so custodial banking started and it was simple. You would leave it there for eight months. You would pay, you know, whatever, 0.001 for them to store it for you. Uh, they got to leverage their facilities and their guards. It was a win-win situation. But then they realized, hold on a second, most of these merchants are gone for eight months of the year. Uh, you know, let's get an actuary and let's do some mathematics statistics and we can start loaning out that money on safe loans. And so that's what happened. And that began the beginning of what we call fractionalized reserve banking. And that is the system we have today. Not only did we go off the gold standard, which is aspect number one. So you've got governments who are printing money literally by fiat, right? Which means by ordinance of the government. But you also have a situation where the banks um, have been allowed in most Western countries to have fractionalized reserve banking, which means you are, everyone has become comfortable with the idea that really if they, that the bank only is really holding between 10 to 20% of the actual money in reserves, uh, which they do, by the way, with the central bank, right? They keep an account with the central bank in most cases um, that they can pull from to give people payouts for savings. And the other 80% plus is being used uh, for loans, you see? And so this is where you get into kind of the three factors that cause almost what Warren Buffett calls as kind of an atomic bomb uh, in modern finance. Because you have, now you have governments like the US who can print money by fiat, right? They're printing an enormous amount of money to kind of pull the levers um, of, of what they call the, you know, a sound economy. Uh, we can thank Maynard Keynes for that, the economist. Then you have the banks, which are now able to basically increase that money supply by a factor of 100, it comes out to, between you know all the loans they give each other and everything else because of the fractionalized reserve banking. Then you have the aspect that no one is dealing in cash anymore, so it actually becomes a much higher factor, right? Most people are dealing in credit cards and things like that, so the, you know, it's, you've got the credit cards and stuff also doing a form of fractionization. And then you have the leverage investments, right? You've got all these derivative products. And so when you add all those factors together, right? Like if you look at you know, people suddenly heavily trading in commodities or things like that, um, or you package these derivative products into like subprime loans and things, that's when you get you know, these incredible cascade effects 
because of all of the kind of margin calls, right? In other words, you know, when Lehman Brothers collapsed, right, we might say that real estate is a sound investment. Okay, they were in the subprime ones, but let's say real estate as a whole is considered generally a sound investment. Lehman's brother was so over leveraged relative to their reserves that basically if the real estate market moved a mere 5%, right? Just all of that to do with move 5%, everything they had was wiped out, right? And so, you know, what's going on over here is once this kind of fractionalized reserve banking systems in place combined with leverage, you can literally take any kind of safe investment, right? That people actually need like pork bellies or wheat and weaponize it into an atomic bomb, you know, and, and that's kind of what's going on. So that's the historical backdrop to money as we have it. And so enters Satoshi Nakamoto after 2000, the 2008 crisis and says, look, this is, this is not sound money. You know, the fact that the government has kind of agreed that they've got insurance and Fannie Mac and Fannie Mae and that they secure your deposits, you know, if, if there's a bank run, you know, they'll secure it. The reality is they themselves are not sound money, right? Fiat, government currency is not sound money. We need to recreate in the digital age something that has, that can serve us as gold. Um, you know, I think this was an early on, massive fight within the Bitcoin community because Satoshi Nakamoto basically, you know, wanted something that was both a store of wealth, right? That's what gold has turned into, especially in the last couple of hundreds of years where we don't actually pay for things much in gold. It's become a real store of wealth and a currency, right? That was what he was hoping Bitcoin could be used as a currency. If we look at what's happened with Bitcoin over time because of, you know, gas fees were high and mass adoption, all of that, Bitcoin has has really, and I think it should be looked at this now, replaced gold, right? It's, it is, it doesn't carry counterparty risk, right? If you hold your gold and you stored it, you store your Bitcoin, it acts as gold in that sense, right? It's real money. Anyone will accept it anywhere kind of thing. So you know, no counterparty risk. It is intrinsically rare, right? Bitcoin has a finite supply. We know the kind of supply that's going on. Um, you know, so it's intrinsically rare. Now, of course, people can argue if people don't use Bitcoin, it's not intrinsically rare, right? There's still a 2000 year history of people wanting gold. But I think we're well past that now, right? I think we've got to the point in society where, uh, you know, Bitcoin has been accepted as something, uh, as, you know, as an important historical coin. People value it. Again, that can change, but all things being equal, I think most coins no longer try to unseat Bitcoin, right? Back in the day, you know, it's like the equivalent of flipping a board ape, right? Many coins were like, you know, we, we, we're technically better than Bitcoin, et cetera, et cetera. Now we're at the point where no one cares. Of course, there's things that are technically better. But if Bitcoin's job is just to be the store of wealth, then it doesn't have to perform the tools, the things that Ethereum does. It doesn't have to be cheap transactions, especially now where, you know, we can wrap things like Bitcoin, right? Um, I was looking today, for example, um, you know, wrapped BTC. Um, yeah, it's a good one, you know. So for those who want to just stay on the Ethereum network or a layer two and stuff and, and keep their gas low, we've already got these situations where you have, you know, the equivalent of like USDC for Bitcoin and it's wrapped. So, um, you know, and we have the exchanges where if people want to do, you know, transactions and we'll get to exchanges soon. But the point is, if Bitcoin's job is to be a store of wealth and not for your transactions, 
the gas becomes somewhat irrelevant, right? Because you're parking money over there. So intrinsically rare, no counterparty risk, secured by code, right? Which meant that if you follow basic security procedures, you keep a hardware wallet, you store it yourself, you maybe use custodial banks, right? Because again, you know, this is what I'm going to get into next is how do you practically use the financial system? Um, you know, you can, you can get lockboxes and store your private keys over there and stuff. And so that is what Satoshi Nakamoto was trying to achieve. Uh, and I think he's done so. I think Bitcoin, uh, you know, in my mind now, Bitcoin is literally the digital gold. Ethereum is the security layer. It's like a vaulting layer for assets, in my opinion. And then the other chains start to function as, you know, specific purposes, right? Solana is great to launch a DGEN project if you are trying to get high volume trading going there. Matic is turning into the de facto side chain of Ethereum, even though it's not really a, a formal side chain uh, or a layer two. Uh, but it's it's so close to the bridge is so commonly used. A lot of games are anchoring their assets on Ethereum, but making the transactions in Matic. So, you know, there are going to be a lot of other use cases for chains. But I think these two de facto chains are the institutional choices. They were, you know, large sums of money are being stored with a long term focus. And so that's how I think people should be looking at Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, and looking right now at other chains from a functional level. Uh, that might change over time, but I, I don't think Bitcoin is going to be unseated um, as now the kind of the de facto accepted store of wealth. Um, so much so that if anything for me was like a hard moment from this whole FTX thing was that I think Bitcoin has, has, except on kind of a government and institutional level, I think on a people's level, Bitcoin has replaced gold now like in people's minds, like most people do not think anymore in terms of holding physical gold. I mean, I think, I think kind of the government's won since the 70s, you know, there was a whole period where they actually, it was illegal to hold gold in America. If you were a private citizen, you had to sell it back to the government. You had to have licenses to have gold. It was a real mess. And so I think they've kind of succeeded in that sense. Um, you know, I, when I, if I speak to any kind of Jewish families who have Holocaust survivors, they're obsessed still with holding a bit of gold. Or if I speak to Indians, because it kind of is like physical portable wealth. And most, um, you know, um, European Jewry have stories where they know someone who was in a, you know, concentration camp who had kind of like a gold chain and they would throw over a piece of gold, you know, each week and get an extra loaf of bread. And that's how they survived. So anyone who's kind of been on the run or um, has a history where their entire banking system has had a history of being very broken like Lebanon or India or stuff like that, they tend to still hold gold in very high esteem as something like you literally, it's like you literally need to have some physical gold. You know what I mean? It's like it's your insurance policy if all things go to shit. Or if you look in India, you'll see that, you know, basically, uh, it's it's people carry their wealth on them, right? You'll see, you know, women will have all those gold bangles or in Thailand as well, you've got the Bahat system where basically all jewelry is based on the Bahat is on a, a weight measurement and you just pay a small premium for them to make a jewelry, right? So I believe like all those beautiful bangles over there are basically like three or 5% above gold spot price. Um, and so essentially the jewelers over there are basically currency exchanges, um, you know, who offer you the premium of, of kind of, you know, a standard looking piece of jewelry. Um, but I think most of us in the West, you know, sleep well at night. We don't think that we're going to be in a situation where, um, you know, it will be a zombie apocalypse or something and we'll need 
something to trade with. Also, by the way, if we get to a zombie apocalypse, you know, the whole gold thing only works if you've got a functional economy, just you're in trouble, right? Because if you fall into an, an economy which is not producing the basics anymore, uh, then you go back to the barter system, right? As we saw with COVID, the most valuable item during COVID was toilet paper, you know, and it's important to see these how people react in a kind of crisis like that, because that that's what happens, right? If you go and look at places with rapid, if you had stories of rapid inflation like Argentina and stuff, you will see that um, people just stop accepting money, right? They start accepting, I mean, gold if they think there's some kind of functional. Th you know, black black market going on, or they just work in barter. I mean, basically the you know, like a lot of the 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 cow the ranchers over there started accepting coffee as payment uh, because coffee was non-perishable. So yeah, um, but in short, I think I think more and more most kind of you know people of Curtis age or you know even thirty and younger no longer look as gold. They understand it's important, but they don't, it's, it, you know, most people are just not storing gold. And, and also people have become very calm with the idea of uh, gold derivative products, right? ETFs, right? You know, back to our commodity point, a lot of people will have like gold as part of their portfolio. And when I ask them what that means is they've either invested into gold mining companies uh, or they have gold, but as an ETF, which means, you know, a kind of derivative product. And that's not real gold, right? Like if there was a gold run, you know, uh, like people wanted to ex collect on their gold, um, it, it would be kind of, you know, they, they could fulfill 20% of the supply or something. So that's part one of here. That's kind of a bit of a history to sound money. Now let's have a look in kind of the practical cases. So, you know, the way I kind of as crazy libertarian look at, you know, modern banks, fintech, paper, and all of these things is... Um, you know, especially as we move into this era of heavy control, right? You know, ever since we went KYC, um, you know, it's getting worse and worse and worse, right? Like if you're in Australia or Canada or New Zealand and stuff and you try and withdraw large sums of money, um, you, you, they either tell you no or you get caught into the manager's office and it's like a, a, a literally a scene out of Ozark. I mean, they ask you if, you, if, if you're under duress, if you're being raped, are you seriously in danger or something? And it's like, Dude, it's, I, just, I just want $10,000. And they're like, well, I mean, you know, you can't have that much cash. It's like, it's my money. You know, and there's all these stories. I mean, I, I work with a diamond dealer and he's like, he told the bank manager, either close my account or have me here, but I'm, I want to have a Scrooge McDuck anniversary moment with my wife. We want to literally bath ourselves in the money. And the manager's like, no, don't you, you have to be serious. He says, I am being serious. That's what I want the money for. And it's my money. So, you know, uh, call the police if you want. Um, and so, yeah, you know, we are getting to a system where they're trying to really move away from cash. Uh, deposits just don't feel that safe. We also know that, you know, uh, apparently, according to Justin Trudeau in Canada, I mean, you know, the, if, if you protest, they can freeze your accounts and stuff. So I think the way, you know, the, the, we, we're in a bit of a catch-22 situation because on the one hand, I think we're all getting the sense of this bank. You combined, you know, how the banks are kind of coordinating with governments now, the move away from cash, the fact that there's fractionized reserve banking. I think there is an uneasy sense that, um, you know, that trust has been broken, right? I don't want to store my wealth uh, in banks. And then yet, but yet we functionally have to operate in a society. So um, I think the way to use banks is, um, you know, 
depending on your kind of on your situation right we all need an in-house bank in our country to do operations i think that's obvious we need credit cards and things like that um but you know there are fintech solutions if you want to try and use some of the kind of fintech apps and stuff for credit cards that's that's a way to do it but i do think most people need a functional bank account and depending on if they're also buying real estate or a house or something you might have to have quite a big deposit with them but you know if you're able to once you've kind of got your you know six to 12 month bandwidth over there or you you've got savings because you you're looking to buy a house or it's your 401k or whatever um you know this is when it starts to get into um kind of two avenues that you can go number one there is let's say you wanted gold so there is such a thing as custodial banks and they're not actually difficult to find um um, you know, obviously you have to do your KYC and stuff, but for example, he has a custodial group in Canada called Gold Money, for example, or if you go to the bullion site. Um, and, and what we mean by custodial banks over there is that if you hold gold with these people, they go through a one-to-one -one audit all the time. Um, and uh, let's see, gold bullion. You know, and they store it for you. And, uh, and then some of them even let you kind of translate it afterwards to a... Um, yeah, he has a couple of them. You look into them and then you can often choose where you have the custody of the gold. So is it Switzerland, Singapore, America, whatever else. Um, but the key point is if you did want gold, you know, they're physically storing it for you, right? So it's one-to-one -one redeemable and so on. And what's nice is, although they're doing a full one-on-one -on -one audit, you don't have to buy a whole gold bar for 30 or 60K, right? Um, so yeah, um, these ones actually ship to you. Who's the one that, um, let's see. I mean, some of them can send you physical delivery, for example, and some of them can store it for you. So you have to look into that. But the key point is if you did want to store something to go. And why this is beneficial is remember that whole KYC thing. A lot of people are having trouble with crypto of bringing it back afterwards, right? If you make a lot of money in crypto and then you try and bring it back into your banking system, a lot of people have trouble. Whereas if you are either sending it into a gold reserve like this or storing some of your money in gold, and then like, in other words, I would say, let's say you were kind of concerned about depreciation of funds or also just you don't want to hold so much in banks which are not reserved one-to-one. -one. So storing it in gold, right? And then converting the gold back to cash when you want to buy a house or something and having that then wire transferred over to your bank or the lawyers for the down payment or something, that is an option, right? So in other words, the key point here is either you, you believe in gold as a store of wealth, you want that as part of your portfolio, which I think is not a bad idea. I think people should consider some gold as part of their portfolio. Or if you're concerned about the problem of kind of going full woke libertarian like me and having so little in the banking system that you almost you know, have trouble convincing them when you want to bring 100 or 200K in for a house and they're like, well, where the hell did you get this money from, right? And if you have it stored in gold and then bring it over, the gold companies are doing KYCs for you anyway. And so it's already, it's closer to the banking system, right? These like, all these big gold groups are the custodial banks as well for the banks themselves, right? Like, you know, you'll see all of these 
um, here, look at this. This is like the central bank. This is like the gold in England, inside the Bank of England. And the Bank of England is, you know, the bank. Of, that's another good one, by the way. You can open an account, for example, with the Bank of England, gold division, and they store your gold for you. So it's literally part of the main banking system that these big kind of custodial gold places like that exist and, and you have access to them. You do not have to have a whole gold bar. That's the point. You can get access to this custodial banking. I think they charge maximum between 0.1 to 0.05% per year or something. The, the big expense is really just, you know, the wire transfer in and the initial purchase. And I think they take a commission if you sell it, but it's very affordable. And so it's something to look into if anyone wants to hold gold, because again, if you hold physical gold yourself, like gold coins, and you have to store it somewhere. Also, again, it's a problem if you sell it and then try to put that money back into the bank. So if your concern is not so much like, you know, I'm, I'm going to say Rapjack over here because Rapjack hates doing KYCs if you can avoid them. But if you're not trying to avoid tax or considering just trying to hide your money, whatever your story is, but you want to be part of the banking system per se, you just don't want to be part of the fractionized reserve problem that is banks, right? You're scared that there'll be bank runs and stuff. Then having gold custody accounts is a way to have your money 101 backed by gold, you know. And what's interesting is some of these groups like gold money allow you to have custodial cash accounts too, right? Like it's a side thing because they have people back, back and forth buying and selling gold. They, they allow you to have a basic savings accounts too. Now you won't get interest on your money, but it's a good way to store your money, right? And some of them also allow you to have a credit card. So it's definitely worth exploring. Feel free if you find a company or something to tag me over here and I can have a look, um, you know, kind of give them an overview of if they, you know, behaving and stuff like that. Um, so that's a way to look at it. As a second point, for those of you who are in um, some of the Middle Eastern countries or have access to offshore banking, uh, many of the private banks offer full custodial services, meaning uh, even though they're, they're not commercial banks, right? Private banks and a lot of trading houses, uh, this is another hack, you can store your savings in a trading house, right? You just want to check that these trading groups have kind of segregated accounts, one-to-one, uh, -one, um, you know, ideally an insurance as well and stuff like that, right? The key point is you, you, want, you want kind of medieval custodial services as opposed to kind of, you know, people just being happy with checking accounts and savings accounts that are giving them almost no savings. And yet the bank is being allowed to use 80% of your money to issue loans, right? It's a bizarre thing that we've got used to. So that's what you want to break. And also a lot of these new DeFi apps, they often, often have very small limits on how much money you can actually go with them and transactions. But most of these kind of DeFi groups are not offering loans. So that's the key thing. You want to check, you know, are they giving you segregated accounts? Uh, are they... Um, are the reserves one-to-one? -one? Um, um, what other kind of business is it engaging in? You know, are they also offering loans and stuff? And if they are, that's fine. You know, they can do that. But whose money is it? Did they raise capital for it? Are they using the client's money? What's the story? So that's kind of on the traditional banking side. Um, also, you know, I make use of things like PayPal, but I would never store money in PayPal um, because, again, you know, the, the, the process involved... Um, of having to kind of fight them. You know, I've been, you know, I did it with, you know, I worked in jewelry and fine art and stuff. So I got paid plenty of times in PayPal. 
And every time, you know, every third time I got a big payment, I mean, I, I had the money frozen, they wanted to know why, you know, it's, it's, it's a horrible thing that uh, we've got used to this kind of behavior, like the burden of proof is on you with your own money. It's, 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 it's insane, but that's where we are. So people need to think slightly out of the box. So in short, friends, the key point is you want to look for custodial services, whether you want to hold gold or fiat. And the, the best solutions for that are to stay close to the normal financial system so that you don't have problems when you want to actually then use that money for a home or something. Uh, and so you want to be doing your KYCs. You want to be using an institution that is a big trading house like Robinhood or something or a gold reserve that is storing your gold. But the key point here is segregated accounts, audits and custodial, right? That they're keeping it on a ratio of one to one. So that's in the current tra traditional banking system. Then when you get into cryptocurrencies, um, it's, it's similar for the exchanges, right? This is the kind of key point. I, th I think what, you know, people just assumed, right, that these exchanges would behave like trading, uh, trading groups, right, like Robinhood and stuff. And you know what? For most people, that assumption was very fair. You know, I think the biggest scandal of this whole FTX saga and a few others that had happened before them is that, you know, and why I've kind of been so fucking pissed off this week is all the regulations already exist, right? As far as, you know, kind of the law is concerned, FTX was just basically um, a trading house, right? They were like Robin Hood. They were like Fidelity Group. They were like Schwab. They just happened to be trading an alternative investment group category called, you know, crypto. They were not, um, you know, the Web2 company. And so the fact that they didn't have the basic uh, oversight that was expected because, you know, this is the problem that was going on now in the West. Everyone's like, yeah, 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 crypto and stuff should be regulated. But no one wanted to give any clarity. No one wanted to work with these exchanges to tell them how to be on board. Uh, no one want, you know, there's still no clarity if the SEC is in charge of this or the commodity exchange. And so both of them have kind of, you know, having this internal governmental war over the issue and no one's actually doing the oversight, right? And so all it took was someone like Sam Bank free to had enough connections and was giving enough Democrats money uh, for any time they were kind of minor whistleblowers. And I bet you it's going to come out there were some whistleblowers. Any time there were whistleblowers, um, you know, to come out and, and get away with this kind of shit. Um, but, you know, in favor, when, when these things hit the courts, I think the courts are going to find very much in favor of the exchanges. Because, you know, when it comes to regulations and things, the courts strongly take into account um, uh, kind of like your actions, like how have the exchanges behaved. And, and you know what? Every time the exchanges were asked for compliance stuff, they complied. Right. In other words, like when you look in 2012 and stuff, when they came to the exchanges and said, we now require you to do KYCs. They all complied, even the offshore ones, even the ones set up in Caymans and Bahamas and stuff. They all wanted to be doing, you know, the, pretty much good practice. Um, you know, we've, we've, you know, as much as we degens and we traders and we, we, we accept high risk and stuff, everyone from the exchange point of view, we, we want to be part of the legitimate financial system, right? Um, and so I, I think, um, you know, this is going to play out very badly for politics right now. Uh, and I'm so happy 
that it was Sam Bankman-Fried that was taken down in this particular case because the Republicans now have a bone to pick, right? He happened to be the second biggest Democratic um, supporter. And again, this isn't if you favor Democrats or Republicans or not, but if it had not been Sam Bankman-Fried, I'm worried that we would have had a bipartisan um, inquisition against crypto because there is an angle for one of the parties to take over here regarding this being, you know, about mole practice of a democratic government and getting donations stuff. In other words, another Bernie Madoff situation. We 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 are hopefully going to get, you know, progressive kind of um, um, a progressive instead of regressive approach to crypto regulations while acknowledging that this FTX scandal really had fuck all to do with Web3, okay? This was a failure of um, good financial institution stuff that is supposed to already exist because they all had their heads in the ground because, you know, again, this was a pissing competition between which regulator was meant to be doing the oversight. So, you know, shame on them. Um, but it just goes to show that once again, you know, not your, not your keys, not your coins, right? Same principles apply. Um, you know, I, I want to give a shout out to some of, of the groups who voluntarily, you know, uh, applied best practices upon themselves, you know, like we've tried to do with Fat Cat. I mean, a major shout out to Kraken. Um, who for since 2014, I believe, has gone through voluntary um, audits and disclosures and things. I mean, you know, we the free market has solutions, right? There are some very good accounting firms that are able to do audits and things uh, that I'm happy to go to bed at night, whether the government has looked into it or not, because these accounting firms have to keep, you know, a, a good name. And so when it comes to using crypto exchanges, I would really say, you know, please, friends, use them, um, you know, again, like you would PayPal and stuff for your transactions, right? Uh, they're a great way to get money in and out if you needed to go back into the banking system because they've done a KYC on you. They're a great place to uh, do some day trading, um, you know, and, and leaving an amount of money that you're comfortable being frozen over there. Should it be frozen? They are a great way to bridge money to different things, right? The easiest way to bridge ETH to Solano is to just send the ETH to your you know exchange and then from there do the swap over you'll save a lot of fees and so use it as a utility i mean the utility of an exchange is the service it provides at a great fee and at a great speed and so on uh, and so there's nothing wrong with exchanges but i think really it's time for people to you know invest more into kind of a grid plus or a trezor or a ledger um, you know, maybe go and buy yourself a box. I mean, there are, you'll find that there are lots of banks that no longer want to do kind of uh, boxing of people's funds, but there are a lot to do. It's often very cheap, you know, to get a kind of security box in a bank, you know, $150 or something a year in some places. And that's a great place to store kind of a seed phrase or stuff or, or a backup or things like that. So, you know, take control of your finances if you can. Um, and then also, you know, take the time to look into some of these exchanges because some of them, as I say, do have good practice, right? Uh, you know, they, you, you don't need to kind of run in fear now. Um, there are, are exchanges that are going to get a good name as being the custodial sources because a lot of institutions can't, you know, 
cold storage all the time. So, you know, um, once we start to get some of these investment funds coming in, Sequoia and different things, they will need these exchanges anyway, right? This is a whole formation of kind of things like USDC because they needed to have a digital version of the dollar where they could kind of finish their trades daily and then store it in the currency that their holders are essentially going to be paid back in. And they needed these institutions uh, to be market makers for them, to be their custody and stuff like that, because they couldn't keep moving, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or sometimes a million dollars in and off of exchanges because they cause these major spikes in the in the market. But, you know, I, I don't have that problem yet, guys. I mean, I'm not moving millions on and off. And so it's not my problem. I can store on my kind of hardware wallets and things like that. Uh, so that's how you should be looking at exchanges. For exchanges, again, judge them by the same principles. You want to make sure that they're having an audit. You want to make sure that they've got segregated accounts. Uh, you want to make sure that there's oversight. And if you're not comfortable or, you know, you are actively trading like many of us are, um, you know, consider keeping most of it um, on hardware wallets. Um, the good thing is also is DeFi has come a long way. We're starting to see now, Park, if you want to just toss that link, maybe we're starting to see for those of you who are traders, there are now trading solutions, right? Like one of the major benefits for traders is, you know, you, you get like on Binance and stuff, you get all these uh, tools that, that, you know, for you technical folk, um, you've got used to, you know, stop losses, um, put offers, calls, options, things like that, that, you know, are really much more advanced on kind of centralized exchanges than there are on, you know, decentralized exchanges. But there are some tools coming out now. Um, I don't know if Park can hear me, but uh, if we can get that link, you know, there are some solutions. I know that Bankall's working on a lot of solutions. I know that also for those who are trying to kind of be gas savvy. Uh, a lot of people are starting to do their trading now on Arbitrum, which is kind of a layer two. And for anyone who needs help with that, it's it's very easy to bridge Ethereum, you know, up and down from the from the Arbitrum layer and back again. Uh, and again, the gas fees are very low over there, so it's a it's a trader's paradise. Uh, but yeah, we we have come a long way in DeFi for traders. Um, and so you know, I, more and more people can use exchanges, as I say, to do that currency exchange and also to get money back and forth from their bank accounts. Um, so yeah, that's that's the general kind of, I think, way to look at as, as, uh, as I look at sound money and how I'm looking at kind of all the different institutions in place. Um, if anyone wants to ask any questions or kind of comment or give some thoughts, go for it. No? Park, you want to pipe up, Chio? Anyone? Yeah, I think I found the link, so I'm going to just post this as well. Um, yeah, Unidex bot, Nadia and Parker having a look into this but others can too and then also again for notes i think people have a look into the arbitrum network are you all familiar with the concept of layer twos by the way arbitrum and and immutable x and stuff like that do you... 
Are you are you all familiar, just as a question in general, with with layer twos? Um, by the way, this is the Unibot that's doing kind of a solution. But are you know are, do, do people understand what 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 layer twos are? Uh, like Arbitrum and Immutable X. Don't be shy. Anyone? <laughs> You can unmute yourself, friends. If you want to elaborate, I'm sure it'll be greatly appreciated. Sure. So, you know, there's been a lot of talk about sharding, and sharding is kind of a layer one solution uh, for Ethereum. So, you know, whereby um, the blocks will kind of on layer one um, have a greater amount of settlement. I mean, I won't go into the technicals and that, but a layer two uh, like Arbitrum and ZK Rollup, what they do is they're almost a side ledger, right? So what they do is they, uh, all the transactions happen on that kind of side ledger, and then they get settled once a day. And there's a very clever system of kind of rolling it up so that, you know, it's like a condensed form of transaction that has to go on the layer one. And, um, and they have a very clever way of auditing it so that like if something goes wrong, you know, people can't kind of play a game where they try and, you know, you know, use the same Ethereum on block one and block two and stuff like that. So it's, it gets very technical, but the key point is that you have to view it as it's it, Arbitrum and Immutable X, they use the Optimism technology or the ZK Rollup technology. In fact, I will give you a fantastic video about it. Um, this, is, this, is a great, this is a great set of videos in general if you want to kind of take a deep dive into the technical stuff. Let me see if I can find it. Finematic. Um, but is it? If I can find it quickly. Cinematics, there we go. Okay, this is an amazing channel if you want to kind of get into the technical deep dives. But in short, it's all ERC-20 tokens, okay? Um, all ERC-20 tokens, it's the same Ethereum, it's just been bridged to a second layer. This is different than Matic, which is actually a different chain that just works very well with Ethereum. This is also different to a, a side chain like um, the Rodan network, which Axie has that, again, it's, it's, it's based, it's like those side chains like Gala and Ronan, they basically are, um, instead of kind of just creating a coin like Crown Coin, they've created basically a whole DEX, a whole kind of side chain, and they settle it eventually on Ethereum, but of course, it's, you're relying a lot on their security and stuff. Whereas Arbitrum, the beauty of it is, is it has the full security of layer one. It's just settled um, once a day. And so it kind of becomes a much cheaper aggregated cost. And so you're seeing a lot of people now moving um, their DeFi trading to Arbitrum. Uh, because again, you just use a bridge. I mean, the best Arbitrum, you know, if you even, you can even go to... I think already Uniswap offers a bridge. Yeah, let's see. Um, Arbitum Bridge. 
Yeah, he has the official bridge, for example. Okay, and so this allows you to bridge to layer two. And then once you're on layer two, then if you go to, for example, Uniswap or SushiSwap, uh, you will see that you can just um, swap over to that chain. Uh, you can actually pick in chain, let's see. There we go. Perfect. Yeah, have a look at this. So if you go to the standard, if you go to the standard Uniswap, you'll see that, you know, once you've bridged it over, you can literally change, change the chains and there, there it is, right? So you can continue all the normal Uniswap stuff. You've got their Arbitrum and Optimism and so on. And just, uh, you know, Arbitrum, you know, you want to go for one which has deep liquidity pools. I mean, if you're trading the big coins anyway, like, you know, with Bitcoin, with Ethereum, stuff like that, you're fine. But you just have to check for these layer twos uh, that they've got deep enough liquidity pools for some of the kind of other coins um, that might be, you know, smaller market caps. Uh, so, yeah, so that's, you know, layer twos are becoming a fantastic solution for trading. Um, and as I say, keep an eye on Bancor, everyone, because they're working on a whole suite of uh, trading stuff. Okay, so that, yeah, so that, that's technical front. But you know what, friends, in general, feel free to ask us questions over here. You know, if you're looking at exchange and you want to kind of crowdsource our intellect, feel free to tag me or ask others or, you know, uh, plenty of people are very well informed from, you know, MC I know has does does very big sleuth things. I mean, he's always been a big supporter of Gemini as an exchange, which is another one that has really been very good uh, on best practices and stuff like that so feel free you know when it comes to kind of banking and audits and and, and checking if they've got kind of got good well-behaved policy uh feel free to tag us um or just post your questions in cafe text chat or whatever and we'll you know we'll try and have a look together with you cool what else joe did i miss anything i think we covered it all or a lot of it Awesome. Okay, well then if there's no general questions, I'm going to end this class now and get this over to Cyril. Hopefully it recorded properly. I think it did. Uh, so again, this has been a, a class about sound money, uh, both the kind of theoretical and history and how Satoshi Nakamoto kind of came to his conclusions why we needed things like Bitcoin. And then a bit of practical thought um, on how to take those principles and apply them so that you kind of are not just you know, part of the, the fiat problem. Okay, everyone.